Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Allahümme bârik ya Rabbi. Ve zed ala seyyidina Muhammed. Allahümme salli ala seyyidina Muhammed. El-Fatiha'na ma uglikin khatim lima sabiq. Nasrul al-Hakib al-Hakib al-Hadi ila siratika al-Mustakim. Ve ala alihi ve sahbihi haqqa qadrihi ve miktarihi al-Azim. Allahümme salli ve sellem ve bârik alayhi. Uh, last week we briefly finished the first section uh, But there were things that I went over quite quickly That in uh, having the chance to go back and review it I decided that I wanted to go back So we're going to take a step back a little bit Just to emphasize some of what passed And then uh, from there we'll, we'll move forward inshallah So by way of reminder the first section of the Burda of Imam al-Busiri radiallahu ta'ala anhu regards love. Uh, nostalgic rhapsody and love complaint is the way that it's translated in uh, in this um, in the Ibn Ajiba's commentary that's uh, translated by Abdaziz Suraqa. And uh, one of the lines that we came across was the line where he says رَحِمُهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَ وَنَفْرَ اللَّهُ وَيَهُ بِعُلُومِهِ فِي الدَّارِينَ أَمِينَ يَا لَائِمِي فِي الْهَوَى الْعُذْرِ مَعْذِرَةً مِنِّي إِلَيْكَ وَلَوْ أَنصَفْتَ لَمْ تَلُمِي O you who blame me for this chaste love, pardon me, but had you judged fairly, you would not have blamed me. And uh, I want to use this verse to talk about love a little bit, because what um, is being referred to here is a uh, a people so it is a chaste love and hawa al-udri is a chaste love that's true but it's also a reference to a certain tribe and that tribe tribe is the tribe of benu udra benu udra benu udra were a tribe in in the lands of the arabs who were particularly well known for their chastity, temperance, loyalty, fidelity, tender-heartedness in their love. They were known for being a people who fall in love, and when they fall in love, they have an extremely high level of dedication to their beloved, high level of uh, connection and loyalty and fidelity uh, to the one who they fall in love with. And so um, uh, that that is... Um, what the reference is to as well when it says al-hawa al-udri it's also a reference to these people uh, someone asked can you mention the name of the book again the name of the book is the following the mainstay a commentary on qasida al-burda by sheikh ahmed ibn ajiba and hassani and translated by abdulaziz suraqa i think publisher is abu zahra press yeah the mainstay a commentary commentary on qasida al-burda so um so it's a reference to these people and Ibn Ajiba rahimahullah he uses kind of like this as a jumping off point for a lot of discussion around the idea of love and I want to spend a little bit of time on it because it's a very important thing it's a very important thing to learn how to love and to learn how to love takes uh, a lot of courage and it takes a lot of knowledge of oneself uh, and our love you know a capacity capacities can be transferred in a sense they can be put in the wrong place or they can be put in the right place but a person who can't love at all can't love Allah and his prophet either but a person who can love deeply perhaps even in the wrong place that means they can put that love in the right place as well if they adjust it and so uh, our goal is never to get rid of emotions this Islam is not uh, you know you see this in some Eastern religions this idea of eliminating emotions and eliminating attachments and all of these kind of things that's not actually what you find in uh, our books of spirituality the idea is not to eliminate it the idea is to put a natural feeling or emotion in the right place 
and to express it in the right way. And uh, so the deepest love, and that's what we're seeing, right? And this, this poem is taking that route. It's taking the route of acknowledging love and putting that love in the uh, in in connection to the blessed prophet sallallahu alaihi wa alihi wa sallam so he takes us then as a big jumping off point and uh, there's just some pieces that i want to read from the commentary to kind of emphasize this that these were people who understood love right? people understood emotions uh, one of the salaf said i saw qais al-majnun in a dream after his death, obviously, and asked him, Qais, if you recall, there's the story of Layla and Majnoon. Layla and Majnoon. And Layla is the woman, and Majnoon is the crazy one. And he's Majnoon Layla. His name is actually Qais. That his, um, he's known to just, just be the one who's crazy about Layla, but his name is actually Qais. So one of the Salaf, one of the early Muslims said, I saw Qais in a dream, and I asked him, what did Allah do with you? You take the dreams always. Uh, you take them with a grain of salt. You know, take the lesson from it. Don't really like make too much out of it, especially if it's not your dream. But take the general lesson from it and and move on. So uh, he said. He said, "What did what did Allah do with you?" And he replied, "He forgave me and made me a proof against the lovers. He forgave me and made me a proof against the lovers." It is related that on the Day of Judgment, this is going to explain it more. It is related that on the Day of Judgment, by the way, if it says it is related in this kind of passive uh, expression, generally, especially if the translator is good, then they did that on purpose. Because in Arabic, they use this passive expression to indicate that the narration is not so sound. Uh, Although, obviously, they're putting it there for a reason. But perhaps by the conditions of, you know, hadith sciences and so on, it may not be authenticated in a very strong way. So they use the passive expression. It's said about the Prophet, for example, rather than the Prophet said um, or the Prophet did in an active voice. So the passive voice often indicates that the narration is not so strong. Again, take the general point. It is related that on the day of resurrection, a divine call will be made asking, where is the madman of Layla? And he shall be brought before Allah with disheveled hair and will be covered in dust, as if he were a ghoul or limpid creature, as he was in the life of this world. Allah will take him to account and then forgive him and say, Where are those who claim to love me? Is there anyone among is there any amongst you whose obedience has reached the level of Qais's obedience to Layla and whose love has reached his level of love for her? So you see this idea then, that uh, the reason why we talk about the relationship of love is because the relationship of love is uh, then the capacity is going to be used for Allah and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So it says it's said that on the day of judgment, Qais will come, and Allah will tell him about everything. He'll forgive him, and then he'll call out to everyone else. You claim to love me. Are there any of you that loved me the way that Qais loved Layla? Because if not, then what's your claim that to, to love Allah? That you know you're saying that you love Allah, but you don't love Him, and uh, even in the way that Qais loved Layla. Uh, so this is you know uh, one of the stories that's mentioned there. Another one is that um, uh, I'm going to read this whole story. Some of them are interesting. Uh, it is reported that a young man from Basra fell deeply in love with a young cousin of his from his father's side. Uh, you know, American context, people are really. You know, the cousin thing, they're really apprehensive about it. Technically speaking, uh, it's allowed in the Sharia. Uh, whether or not you should do it, different question. So, you know, the point is, don't get caught up in the details. Uh, they used to, they always say, that it's not like people of maturity, they shouldn't get lost in the details of an example. Like, Use the example to, to take the lesson and move on with it. You don't have to nitpick on the example. It is reported that a young man from Basra fell deeply in love with a young cousin of his from his father's side. He went to her father and asked for her hand in marriage, but the father refused, and instead turned him down because of his poverty and refused to allow him to marry her. Uh, 
The young man was extremely distraught and had nearly lost his mind. And when news of his state reached the young girl, she sent for him and said, I've been apprised of your intense love for me, and I've come to know your condition. But know that my love for you exceeds your love for me. So if you like, I can come out to see you without my family knowing. And if you like, I can facilitate your visit to me in secret. The young man sent back the message. So you see what's happening. The young, back, young, man, young man sent back the following message. I have no need for any of that. I fear a blazing fire and everlasting torment. That was his whole response. When the messengers went back to her with this message, uh, she wept and said, By Allah, no one has more right to that than me. And verily, all of creation are equal when it comes to the divine threat and promise. Immediately thereafter, the girl began a life of spiritual devotion and worship. Her change weighed heavily upon her family, but she continued in her devotions till she died. The young man would visit her grave every day and pray for her and seek forgiveness for her and then leave. She later came to him in a dream and he said to her, Are you the girl so-and-so? She replied, Yes. He said to her, Tell me what became of you after death. She then stood up and sung the following lines, Unto delight and never-ending life, in gardens eternal never-fading. The young man asked her, Do you remember me? She replied, By Allah, I shall never forget you. Indeed, I ask my Lord to reunite us. He asked, So when shall we meet? She replied, Very soon, Allah willing. After this dream, the young man strove in pious devotions and worship for a few days, and then died and joined her. May Allah have mercy upon both of them. That was an interesting, interesting story. I think what's interesting about the story is that there's still limits. It's not just like, I feel this, I feel this, so I'm going to do whatever. There's, there, there are still limits to it. Um, and then they were reunited. Uh, another, another story comes. Uh, this one I chose because it's actually, it's about the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, being uh, dealing with the people of Beni Udra that I mentioned, Beni Udra, the people that were like known for this deep love. So the point of bringing this particular narration is because. It shows that this was something that was known to uh, the people of Arabia. It was known to the even to the companions of the Prophet Ikrama said, Once when we were with Ibn Abbas, عنهما, a group of young men from Banu Udra came carrying a young man whose body had withered and wasted away. They said, Nephew of Allah's emissary, وسلم, seek a healing for us, for this young man. Ibn Abbas asked, what is his condition? And what has afflicted him? Just then the young man sung in a low, solemn voice. We suffer lovesickness from intense longing and loneliness. The lover's soul nearly melts from its intensity. It is no wonder that lovers should die of passion. The wonder is that ardent lovers should survive. Then he let out a shriek and died on the spot. May Allah have mercy upon him. Ibn Abbas said, Have you ever seen anyone like him? Verily he is a martyr of love, for which there is no blood wit or indemnity. We ask Allah for well-being. He said, Wow, look at this guy. He actually like died out of his emotional state. And um, and you see this, right? Like We see this now, this idea. It's common in, in medicine, even the understanding of the idea that when people are emotionally... Um, Going through things, it affects their physical well-being. It affects their physical well-being. Uh, Abu Nawfal al-Hudali was asked, Is there anyone who is safe from passion? He replied, Only a boorish and brutish person devoid of all virtue and forbearance. The reason why I brought this quote is I think it's really interesting that, uh, again, you know, sometimes there's this kind of push towards having no emotions at all. You know, the best thing is to have no emotions. And uh, what he's saying is, if a person doesn't love, then that is the person that's the problem. The person who doesn't have passion, they don't have love, they are a person who has a problem. They're, they're devoid of all virtue, of all forbearance. Um, so then he takes us to say, like, all of this then, let's take it to the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, he says عن, the difference between love and passion hub and ishq hub and ishq is that the latter is usually coupled with carnal desire while the former is not 
All that has been mentioned here concerns love between created beings. So the question here is, does the Creator love His creation? The answer is yes, and there are many signs of divine love. Among these signs is that acts of obedience are made easy, and the servant is blessed with the enabling grace to perform them, and that the servant is tested and is patient. As is stated in a hadith, when Allah loves a servant, He tests him, and if he is patient, He selects him for Himself. And if he is satisfied, he chooses him. If he has patience, if they have perseverance, if they have uh, ridha, satisfaction with the things that they are going through, not necessarily that you like them, but there's a level of contentment, satisfaction, maybe. Um, um, he also says, When Allah loves a servant, He causes him to see his personal faults. I think this is a really important statement. It says, when Allah loves a person, He allows him to see his personal faults. And this is one of those really scary things, you know. Because as Imam Ghazali talks about, one of the ways that we can know the things that we have issue with is by observing them in others. And sometimes we may observe in other people certain qualities that they don't even realize that they have. You know uh, that are that are negative, and then one wonders to themselves, like, wait, that means I have also negative qualities that I don't even realize that I have, and ugly things that I do that I don't even realize I have, and uh, and so the the thrust of Islamic spirituality is always um, is always hmm, that's an interesting. The thrust of the spirituality is always to look inwards and one's own personal responsibility. What is my own personal responsibility? Have what are my own personal mistakes? What what is it that I was at fault with? And the thrust of the Sharia is to look at justice in the external world. So that's going to look at the rights that are owed to you and to others and so on and so forth. That's that's the the external law. But the internal matters of the heart are matters that we, we look at ourselves and we question ourselves and we look to our own shortcomings rather than to look to others' shortcomings. Astaghfirullah. Uh, it is recorded in Sahih al-Bukhari when Allah loves someone, He calls out to Jibril and says, Truly, I love so-and-so, so love him. Then Jibril calls out to those in the heavens, Truly, Allah loves so-and-so, so love him. And then the inhabitants of the heavens love that person and acceptance is placed for that person in the earth. So this is a hadith that's showing that Allah loves his servants. Because <coughs> that's what he's talking about now. <coughs> As for the signs of the servants' love for Allah. As for the signs of the servants' love for Allah. What are they? Number one, he mentions here eight. Number one. Number one sign is that they are protected from sin. Their love for Allah protects them from sin. It becomes a barrier between them and doing things that are bad. I think it's pretty straightforward. Number two, they have a love for acts of obedience. They have a love for acts of obedience. It's an indication that they have a love for Allah, that they love to serve Him. Number three is that the person loves to meet Allah. They love to meet Allah. Meaning, they're not afraid to die. They're not worried about dying. Uh, he says in the commentary though, a slight subtlety here. Another sign of a servant's love for Allah is that he loves to meet Him. The lover does not dislike meeting his beloved. However, it is possible that he may dislike death because of his scant provisions for the hereafter. And because he hopes to live longer so he can increase in righteous deeds and make up for what was lost. So the, the issue is not that they don't want to meet Allah. The issue is that they want to meet Allah with more. And they recognize, okay, there's more I could have done. There's things that I would have done better. If I had more time, I would do this, X, Y, Z. But it's not about the actual issue of meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number four, that they prefer Allah's good pleasure over the desires of their ego. That they prefer, they prefer Allah's good uh, the, they prefer Allah's good pleasure over the desires of their ego. So a person is maybe tested with doing something that they know they shouldn't do. And uh, 
they prefer and and so rather than doing what they want to do they choose to do what Allah asked them to do that is number four number five that they are infatuated with Allah's remembrance their tongue never slacking from invocation and the heart never empty of him that they always remember Allah it's a sign of loving him this is what the person does right the person's in love they always think of their beloved so if the person really loves Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then their heart it's going to be always thinking about Allah. And their tongue will always be mentioning Allah. Number six, that their solace is in seclusion and intimate prayers to Allah and recitation of his book, isolated from creation. As was related about Ibrahim ibn Adham, it is said that he once came out of his cell, his place where he was worshipping, when a man saw him and asked, Where have you come from? Ibrahim ibn Adham replied, From intimacy with Allah. From intimacy with Allah. He said, where did you come from? I came from intimacy with Allah. So, uh, you know, if your head's in the gutter when you hear that, just get your head out of the gutter. Okay, <laughs> this is different realm. Uh, don't, again, you know, poetry and even spirituality are hard because they're somewhat related. They're issues of, of experience that are very difficult to put words on so if you um, so metaphor has to be used and oftentimes Muslims who are very rigid in their mind will have difficulties with the metaphors and uh, that's okay if, if that's if you're finding that that's okay but just know that it doesn't have to be that way <laughs> that we, we, we can embrace this and the assumption has to be I know who Allah is. Okay, so Ibrahim ibn Adham is one of the greatest righteous people in all of Muslim history, by agreement. Like any old, he's from the early generation of pious worshippers, and uh, so he he knows who is Allah. He knows what he can say about Allah, what he can't say about Allah, what he can believe about Allah, what he can't believe about Allah, and so on and so forth. So when he says intimacy with Allah, there's no like anthropomorphism in that. There's no subhanahu wa ta'ala jalla jalana. Glorified and exalted is he. It's just important to kind of review that sometimes. Alright, so that's number six. To have this uh, preferring isolation and seclusion so that one can worship. Not preferring, uh, you know, Allah forgive us, not preferring isolation and seclusion so we can get caught up on Netflix or get caught up on this or that or whatever else it might be or to watch something but the isolation and seclusion so that the person can worship Allah without anyone else around and may Allah put the love for that in our hearts and number seven among the signs that a servant loves Allah is that he is merciful towards Allah's servants and compassionate with them okay um, the full sentence I don't want to Out of academic integrity I need to read the full sentence I was debating like Should I read the whole thing or not But I think it would be dishonest If I didn't read the whole sentence Among the signs that a servant loves Allah Is that he is merciful towards Allah's servants And compassionate with them Yet stern against the people of sin This being out of reverence and esteem For his beloved So one of the things that you'll see in many of the old books is this idea of having a level of sternness with people of sin with people of open disobedience and that very much goes against the common approach now and uh, so you know I'm glad I read the whole thing because then it gives us a chance to reflect upon it I think that when you have a society that um, like truly has a reverence and respect for the divine law and you have individuals who are acting in contrast to that to show some level of sternness can actually help them to adjust their affairs especially when your society is very communal it's not very individualistic, you know. In our, in our society, if someone shows you a little bit of sternness, you just leave. Go deal with someone else, right? Like you don't, uh, 
It's very individualistic in that way. Relationships can be made and broken very quickly and very easily. And, um, but that's not the way of these old societies and communities, right? Old societies and communities are very social. And so if someone falls into an error and other people make it very clear to them that what you're doing is not acceptable, that can actually be a means to help them and to maintain the overall order. There's a benefit in, in having that. Um, but that, that being said, I do not think that this really applies, this particular method of dealing with people. I don't, I don't think that that applies to us now in our current situation. And, um, you know, I think now um, if you push people away or if you show some sternness to them and so on and so forth, they're just going to go. They're going to go somewhere else and they're going to deal with someone else and they're going to leave. So it's not necessary. That's why I almost stopped right at that he is merciful towards Allah's servants and compassionate with them and just stop there. Because I think that's the actual actionable thing for us. The other side of it, we really shouldn't be doing for the most part unless there's a very particular relationship. Like perhaps this can work sometimes with parents. Right, like parents sometimes have to show some level of upsetness with their children about things that they're doing that they don't think are acceptable. And maybe you can, you know, tell them you love them and everything else, but this is this is not okay. And I'm not happy with you. And uh, you know, things things do need to be resolved. Um and there's you know, that's its own um that's its own huge conversation. But for the most part for us now like err on the side and and, in any case err on the side of compassion it'll be okay if you're not sure just err on the side of compassion inshallah everything will be okay but uh there there can be exceptions to that but i'm why i'm saying all this is because when you start if you start to read older books you're going to come across this a lot and when you come across it don't you know one of the things we have to learn from reading these things is which things we have to take without a whole lot of discussion which things we should take with some understanding but still not a whole lot of discussion which things we need a lot of discussion and some understanding and perhaps actually the application will change and so part of like reading the texts is to begin to develop that though that taste for how to engage with this stuff so that the tradition can be living it's not just like everything we take from old books we it's an automatic thing that we do that's why we have living teachers too uh, anyways, I hope that's clear. I think that's enough. I feel like I'm overdoing it. Number eight, out of protective jealousy over his secret, he conceals his love and avoids pretentious claims such as public displays of love. For love is one of the secrets of the lover, and it is conceivable that one make tall claims and be, be, be beset as a result with afflictions and severe punishment. And this will generally be the way of the people of Allah. That their relationship with Allah is a secret between them and Allah. And they're not going to be doing things to make that apparent to you. Because that would be a betrayal of their beloved and the secret that they have with their beloved. Their goal is not to make a show out of their love. Their goal is to be sincere and true in their love with Allah and with the Prophet So these are some of the comments that he had on that verse. Um, we're going to look at more. It's going to be a very lovey day. Inshallah. The next verse is Adatka Hali La Sirri bi Mustatirin Anin Wushati Wala Dai bi Munhasimi. May you be spared my condition, my secret cannot be concealed from detractors, nor is there any cure for my ailment. So you may remember this um, from last time. It's an interesting question in uh the chat box do the people of Allah know that they have a special relationship with Allah um, some of them do some of them don't <laughs> some of them are so humble and they don't see themselves at all to the point that they don't actually you know they don't feel that in any sort of way even though it's true like things are probably happening on their hands and good takes place around them and so on and so forth and 
they don't see any of that because they're just you know focusing on Allah. But the but some people do. Um, but with full like humility and full recognition of uh, their limits and and uh, and the reality of that relationship, uh, I think that if someone, for example, these things that we mentioned, the the signs of love for Allah, if a person experiences those things, then they know like. They get a taste of that. They get a taste of that closeness and that intimacy. Um, I'm hesitant to share something. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how I, it can be shared in a way that won't mess up everything. <laughs> Um, it's like a story that so I I heard about someone who had a dream uh, of a particular you know righteous person people people think that you know generally known to be a righteous person and uh, in the dream they saw the sheikh and the sheikh was walking and was saying to himself uh, I, you have one hundred percent inheritance. You have zero percent inheritance. You have one hundred percent inheritance. You have zero percent inheritance, because the the true scholars are the inheritors of the prophets, right? So there's this idea of a person inheriting from the prophetic wellspring, in a sense. They have something uh, from the from from the teachings of the prophets on Allah who are they them, and if they have one hundred percent inheritance, then they're fully in line with the sunnah right in every way and if they have zero percent obviously they have nothing so someone apparently had a dream like that uh about about a sheikh and and they were like that's interesting so they they told the sheikh and uh this is in the context of do these people know that they have something um and i think there are signs like there are clear signs that a person is on the right track but sometimes those signs can also be delusional, and that's where things get very tricky, right? Um, sometimes there there are no shortage of people who think they have a really special relationship with Allah, and they're actually just narcissists, and 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 villains, and charlatans, and they take advantage of people and everything else, and they think they're justified in doing it because they have this special relationship with Allah, and like Shaitan twists things. That shaitan makes their deeds like look so good to them And they're actually doing things that are horrible So the thing is very tricky Anyways, individual had this dream They told the shaykh The shaykh responded and said that both are true That was his, that was his response to it Both are true That there's full inheritance and there's no inheritance and that's that's like a recognition of it's an affirmation of one's actual position with Allah and humility and so on and so forth while also recognizing that maybe there is something there you know uh, anyways I hope that didn't confuse more than it helped in any case next verse <laughs> May you be spared my condition, my secret cannot be concealed from detractors, nor is there any cure for my ailment. So one of the major things here in this verse is that this verse starts with a dua for the person that is being spoken to. And this is uh, in the Qur'an, it's in the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. The idea of when approaching a touchy subject to make dua or to make some sort of statement that precedes that subject so for example there's one sheikh that uh, we know of that uh, it seems like it seems like his habit is whenever he mentions uh, the restroom or anything related to the restroom he will say before that so, which means like, may Allah honor you. 
So before saying anything that has to do with the restroom, he'll say, Akramukumullah. Uh, even in like, you know, you have to talk about that sometimes in fiqh and stuff like that. But he would make dua for them, make dua for the listener or whoever he's talking to before talking about something that's a little bit sensitive. We should have some haya around it, some modesty, some shyness around it. Um, this is mentioned, there's an example of this with Um Sulaim radiallahu anha. And when she came to the Prophet ﷺ and she asked a sensitive question. So I'll read you the narration. Uh, another example of this, in which a statement is prefaced with gentleness and sympathy appropriate to the situation and the required etiquette and shyness, is the statement of Um Sulaim who said, O emissary of Allah, verily Allah is not shy to speak the truth. That Allah does not shy from speaking the truth is a verse from the Quran. So she starts what she's going to say with this verse. Then she says, Is a woman required to take a full ablution, ghusl, when she has a wet dream? The emissary of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam replied, Yes, if she sees water, meaning secretion. So it's a touchy subject. So in order to open the touchy subject, she opens it by making this dua first. Uh, Um Sulaim removed any objections that could be have been raised about her asking something shameful in the presence of men. On the other hand, one could say that questions do not need to be prefaced in this way. Um, but, you know, it's a nice etiquette either way. Uh, interestingly, he also mentions here um, Actually, I don't know if I should say this. I don't know if anyone has Tell me now if you have any children watching watching this with you. I'm just thinking right now. So let me know somehow if there are any children watching this with you before I say what I'm going to say. Yeah, maybe I, I'll I'll just skip it. The point is, there's another there's another. Um, the point is, uh, let me read the part that, that's okay. Just as Um Sulaim sought pardon for asking about something women are shy to bring up, likewise men are usually shy to bring up certain things before women. This was the point that I wanted to make anyways, which is that there. Are, this is the first narration mentions a woman being shy to bring up certain things. I think it's interesting in the commentary he specifically says, and there are certain things men are shy to bring up too in front of women. And this should be the case. It shouldn't be that there's only shyness on one side or, or and not on the other side. But there are questions that are um, are sensitive. Are sensitive. So what happened was Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, I won't tell you the actual question just to keep it um, rated G, is that the actual Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, who is one of the great companions of the Prophet them, was asking a question to Aisha radiallahu anha. Because Aisha is a great scholar, right? So he has a question and he needs to ask. So who is he going to ask? It's, it's Especially on something like this, she's the one that's going to have knowledge of it. It's a, you know, an intimate matter. So he said to her, O mother of believers, the difference of opinion among the companions of Allah's emissary over a particular matter disturbs me, but I am reluctant to raise it with you. So this is how he opened it. It wasn't a dua, it wasn't something like that, but he opened it with like, I feel shy about this. There's there's a there's a difference of opinion among the companions. Uh, I want to ask about it, but I feel shy to ask you about it. And she basically said, "Whatever you would ask your mother about, ask me." Subhanallah, radiyallahu anha. Umayyadul mu'minin, the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam are the mothers of the believers. So she said, "Whatever you would ask your mother about, feel free to ask me about it." Okay, feel free to ask me about it. And then he asked her the question, radiyallahu taala anhu. That's sufficient. I also want to note in this context that now I've noticed a lot of times on social media, Afallahu Anna, uh, and like protect us from this just the hardness of the manipulation of our nefs that happens on these platforms, um, is that people will talk about certain things that we should have some level of shyness about, and they just like. And there's no problem talking about this because they used to go to the Prophet and ask them. They didn't go to the Prophet and put a public Facebook message with an infographic that has like all of these, pro, not profane, but like sensitive things. There, There is still hayat. Their hayat 
did not prevent them from asking the question, their shyness did not prevent them from asking the question that they needed to ask. It, but it doesn't mean they didn't have it. <laughs> okay? Like sometimes you read these things and you're like, and you're doing it in the name of the Prophet Rajim. Oh, this is just uh, like دَقِّقُوا That's why sometimes I, I hope you guys feel it. I mean, forgive me. But sometimes when we're reading, I'll make these points and stuff and they're really irritating maybe sometimes. You're like, why is he going into detail on this or that? So you can be more precise in the way that we read the text and the way that we engage with the material. Yeah, there's no haya, there's no modesty in asking the question that needs to be asked. There's no modesty in ask, or, 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 pre, that prevents the person from asking the question that they need to ask. There's no modesty that prevents the person from studying the material that they need to study. But that doesn't mean there's no hayat, period. That there's no modesty at all. You know, um, such that like, you know, they used to ask the Prophet, so who told you that means you have to blast it to the entire world? So if they used to go ask the Prophet, so you go and talk to whoever you need to talk to about it in, in your personal private gathering. It doesn't have to be with everybody. <laughs> yeah, you know, I hope this is clear what I'm trying to say. This point makes me crazy. So I'm like, come on, this is not, it's not right. You know, it's just, it's just not, it's not sound. And then it's done in the name of, uh, of like, we're, we're the ones doing what the Prophet and them did with his companions. No, you're not. You're trampling upon actually what they did. They were people of haya. They were people of modesty. You know, they, say, they used to have modesty and from Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anh, they asked the Prophet them about it. He said, how can I not have shyness in front of someone? The angels are shy in front of him. So like, you're going to tell me the, I mean, some of these things are so qabih. They're ugly. Anyways, Allah help us. <clears throat> Next verse says, مَا حَدَّنِي النُّصْحَ لَكِنْ نَسْتُ أَسْمَعُهُ إِنَّ الْمُحِبَّ عَنِ الْعُذَّالِ فِي صَمَمِي You have given me sincere advice, but I cannot hear it. A lover's ears are deaf to the reproaches of critics. So we talked about this last time. Um, Someone asked a really good question about why does why does he call it nusr? Why does he call it sincere advice? But then it's like advice that's not taken or advice that's you know it doesn't get. And then we we talked about that a little bit. Uh, and the specific thing he says in the commentary is, having understood that his critic only blamed him for the sake of rendering sincere advice and out of protective concern and eagerness to comfort him after the loss of his beloved and for the sake of consoling him and desiring to stabilize his condition the author acknowledges the advice given and admits to the truth and concedes that his critic has done his best and given sincere advice even though he disagrees so it can still be sincere um, there's a point I'm going to make here but there's a comment Subhanallah <laughs> That's an amazing comment uh, Uncle Charlie Subhanallah My father Born in 1907 Probably not unlike Others in his generation Did not use the word Pregnancy in front of us He would say When your mother Was in a family way You might say Very modest in his speech Subhanallah Yeah And you know Yeah Maybe sometimes That stuff Went a little bit too far And there were excesses But just because You know You don't have to throw the baby out With the bath water yeah, you don't, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's there's beauty in that. There's there's culture in that. There's um, and it's there in Arabic too, by the way. Some things are very more explicit, maybe than we might be accustomed to sometimes, but some things are also more subtle than what we're accustomed to. Uh, maybe the translation is there is no shame in fiqh. It's hard. Haya is hard. Haya is it's like some some sort of thing between shame and modesty, and reservation, and you know it's it's a very difficult word to to translate. So, all right. So the point that I wanted to make here in this section is, I'm not going to go into detail on it, but uh, actually. The point is here, he says, in, in the commentary, he says, If you ask, but how can he describe himself as deaf when he has clearly heard the critic's statement? The response is, 
even though he heard it, he has negated hearing because it did not leave an impression on him. It was as if he did not hear it at all and was on equal footing with a deaf person in so much as he gained no benefit from what was said. The, the point is not the information here. The point is this technique. So in a lot of the classical books, you'll see this technique. And this technique is, and if it is said, then we say. And if it is said, then we say. And if it is said, then we say. So it's like a, a type of critical reading that's built into the method of commentary. So the method of commentary will give you practice in how to think critically, how to engage, actively engage the text. right? Because there's questions that are likely to come up when you read a text. If one is paying attention, there's questions that are going to come up. And I thought that was one of the things that was cool about the question that uh, the individual asked last week about the sincere advice was that he did mention that in the commentary. So that is like, that is a question that would naturally occur. And oftentimes when you read the commentaries, they'll say, so if someone said this, this is the answer to that. Because they're trying to engage with the natural questions that would occur in a person's mind. And in doing so, also deepening the person's thought and their critical thinking. So that's, this is throughout the commentary. We're not going to go through all of them by any means. But... Um, uh, uh, but... This, it's throughout. You're going to see it in the next point. I got distracted because I was looking at something that... Um, uh, um, also, by the way, in the whole... Uh, maybe the translation could be there is no shame or there is no modesty in fiqh. It's actually in deen. La haya'a fi deen. Not only in fiqh. But in matters of deen. Um, more broadly... In any case, he says down here, Should you ask, why did he fail to heed the advice and accept the counsel, despite acknowledging that do so would rectify his condition and put him at ease? I would reply, because it is not within his power or ability to divert himself from it, his passion. We mentioned earlier how passion is not just a fleeting opinion that can be taken hold of, nor is it based in the rational mind and thus subject to management. Rather, its power is overwhelming and its force is too great to affect through guile. We ask Allah to make our portion of love be for him, exalted is he, and for his pure prophet. Some people who were withered and worn from their love of created beings were granted solace and blessed to ascend higher and experience love for the Lord, and their hearts were occupied with that lofty station. As a result, their heartfelt attachment to the divine became a ladder and rope by which Allah made the path easy for them and by which he guided them to success. This most often happens when people reach old age and the warner of gray hairs appears and they feel fear and shame. The love they have for someone gives rise to soft-heartedness and eagerness for union with their beloved and rouses in them a desire to be close with that person. These feelings then transcend the ephemeral and rise above to the divine and love for creatures is replaced with love for the creator. This idea is referred to in the poetry. So basically what he's saying is... Um, uh, uh, basically what he's saying is that sometimes someone can be deeply in love in a worldly way and that actually ends up being a means of facilitation for them when they turn things around and they go to love Allah then it's, it's made easy for them could you please elaborate on the meaning of Allah at the end uh, what I was saying before Akramakum Allah means May Allah honor you May Allah honor you So The the example that I was giving Was the shaykh that Whenever he would refer to Anything related to like The bathroom He would say Akramakum Allah before that So Maybe they're talking about fiqh And you have to say certain rulings So you have to discuss going to the bathroom he would work that into the way that he talks about it I hope that answers it good there's one piece I want to get to this is going to end the section actually and then um, uh, I want to read a passage from another book and then we'll close inshallah so at the end here of this chapter He says, if you ask, how can the author ascribe deception to gray hair when such an ascription is absurd? I reply, 
Since the gray hairs of warning appeared on his head, yet he persisted in his passions and did not forsake his ways and repent of his errors, and there was no sign of them making an impression upon him, he considered them equivalent to one whose exhortations and advice go unheard and who is deemed suspect. The shared quality between them is his failure to accept their advice and change his bad condition to a good one. Thus, his gray hairs assume the role of a person who is considered suspect, inasmuch as their advice and exhortation go unheeded. Allah Most High knows best. And my comment on this is to, like, look at the way he's, I don't, like, this method that he's using to break this down, if it is said this, then this, if it is said this, then this, this is very commonly used in books of theology. It's very, com very commonly used in books of legal theory when arguing between opinions and, and uh, positions and stuff. And then also what he's doing here is he's uh, making, he's doing a, you can't really see it, but the, the way that it's, you can tell if you try to translate it back to Arabic, that he's doing a breakdown of what kind of istiara is being used. It's like a type of metaphor that's being used in the Arabic language. He's breaking that down there too. The reason why I'm mentioning all of this is to show that these people are from a lineage of scholarship. They come to the sciences, the person who goes through the method of scholarship, they're familiar with a variety of different sciences in Islamic studies. And anything that they study within the realm of Islamic studies is going to draw upon this multitude of disciplines. And so you're going to see like the consequences of a study of the Arabic language and a study of the law and a study of logic and all of these things bear on the commentary even on a topic that is about love of the Prophet ﷺ in poetry, right? This is love poetry and describing the Prophet ﷺ in spirituality and so on and so forth. But the same methods uh, of interpretation that are used to protect the mind in its, in its uh, conclusions are going to be brought to bear on this as they will be brought to bear on other subjects. I want to read now a passage, several pages actually, from another book uh, to close this issue of the idea of the beloved and loving the beloved. Um, and this is from a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a very famous book. Um, more than 16 million copies in print worldwide. So you could say it's a pretty famous book. Uh, Viktor Frankl was from Austria and <coughs> if I'm not mistaken in the beginning. Um, actually, I have to read you something from the beginning, too, uh, from his preface to the 1992 edition. And he was of Jewish background, taken into the concentration camps with the Nazis, and he was already a psych psychiatrist or something in that realm. Um, and so he writes the book about his experiences in concentration camps, and then some of the conclusions on, like, mental health and psychology and everything else. Um, yeah, I have to, it's just too good. I have to read it because it's so Islamic. This, right, this piece right here in the preface. And so it is both strange and remarkable to me that among some dozens of books I have authored, Precisely this one, which I had intended to be published anonymously so that it could never build up any reputation on the part of the author, did become a success. Again and again, I therefore admonish my students, both in Europe and in America, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you are going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen, and the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. Amazing. Amazing. Like, that is an amazing reflection. It's very, very in line with a lot of things that uh, we would believe as well. And this part right here about how he ended up in concentration camps is really remarkable. The reader may ask me why I did not try to escape what was in store for me after Hitler had occupied Austria. Let me answer by recalling the following story. Shortly before the United States entered World War II, I received an invitation to come to the American consulate in Vienna to pick up my immigration visa.
My old parents were overjoyed because they expected that I would soon be allowed to leave Austria. I suddenly hesitated, however. The question beset me. Could I really afford to leave my parents alone to face their fate, to be sent sooner or later to a concentration camp, or even to a so-called extermination camp? Where did my responsibility lie? Should I foster my brainchild, logotherapy, by immigrating to fertile soil where I could write my books? Or should I concentrate on my duties as a real child, the child of my parents, who had to do whatever he could to protect them? I pondered the problem this way, and that but could not arrive at a solution. But I, I'm sorry, I, I pondered the problem this way and that, but could not arrive at a solution. This was the type of dilemma that made one wish for a hint from heaven, as the phrase goes. It was then that I noticed a piece of marble lying on a table at home. When I asked my father about it, he explained that he had found it on the site where the National Socialists had burned down the largest Viennese synagogue. He had taken the piece home because it was a part of the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed. One gilded Hebrew letter was engraved on the piece. My father explained that this letter stood for one of the commandments. Eagerly I asked, which one is it? He answered, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land. At that moment I decided to stay with my father and my mother upon the land and to let the American visa lapse. That's really... That's really amazing. And that's what happened. SubhanAllah, he had a long life. He honored his mother and his father and he had a long life. And his work became known and so on and so forth. And as crazy as it is, none of it would have been possible if he didn't go through this, what he went through. Which is, uh, and if you read the book, you'll see what he went through. It's, uh, it's important to read these things. So this section here, it's about three pages, so bear with me, uh, is on love. Okay, it's on love. In spite of all the enforced physical and mental primitiveness of the life in a concentration camp, it was possible for spiritual life to deepen. Sensitive people who were used to a rich intellectual life may have suffered much pain. They were often of a delicate constitution, but the damage to their inner selves was less. They were able to retreat from their terrible surroundings to a life of inner riches and spiritual freedom. Only in this way can one explain the apparent paradox that some prisoners of a less hardy makeup often seem to survive camp life better than did those of a robust nature. In order to make myself clear, I am forced to fall back on personal experience. Let me tell you what happened on those early mornings when we had to march to our work site. There were shouted commands, detachment forward march, left two, three, four, left two, three, four, left two, three, four, left two, three, four, first man about, left and left and left and left, caps off. These words sound in my ears even now. At the order, caps off, we passed the gate of the camp and searchlights were trained upon us. Whoever did not march smartly got a kick. And worse off was the man who, because of the cold, had pulled his cap back over his ears before permission was given. We stumbled on in the darkness over big stones and through large puddles along the one road leading from the camp. The accompanying guards kept shouting at us and driving us with the butts of their rifles. Anyone with very sore feet supported himself on his neighbor's arm. Hardly a word was spoken. The icy wind did not encourage talk. Hiding his mouth behind his upturned collar, the man marching next to me whispered suddenly, If our wives could see us now. I do hope they are better off in their camps and don't know what is happening to us. That brought thoughts of my own wife to mind, and as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said, but we both knew. Each of us was thinking of his wife. Occasionally I looked at the sky, where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds, but my mind clung to my wife's image imagining it with an uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. Real or not, her look was then more luminous than the sun which was beginning to rise. A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth, that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. 
Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. In the contemplation of his beloved. Uh, and again, you know, this is the same framework that's being used to talk about the Prophet In a position of utter desolation when man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, an honorable way, in such a position man can, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfillment. For the first time in my life I was able to understand the meaning of the words, the angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of infinite glory. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. In front of me a man stumbled, and those following him fell on top of him. The guard rushed over and used his whip on them all. Thus my thoughts were interrupted for a few minutes, but soon my soul found its way back from the prisoner's existence to another world, and I resumed talk with my loved one. I asked her questions, and she answered. She questioned me in return, and I answered. Stop! We had arrived at our work site. Everybody rushed into the dark hut in the hope of getting a fairly decent tool. Each prisoner got a spade or a pickaxe. Can't you hurry up, you pigs? Soon we had resumed the previous day's positions in the ditch. The frozen ground cracked under the point of the pickaxes and sparks flew. The men were silent, their brains numb. My mind still clung to the image of my wife. A thought crossed my mind. I didn't even know if she were still alive. I knew only one thing, which I have learned well by now. Love goes very far beyond the physical person of the beloved. Love goes very far beyond the physical person of the beloved. It finds its deepest meaning in his spiritual being, his inner self. Whether or not he is actually present, whether or not he is still alive at all, ceases somehow to be of importance. I did not know whether my wife was alive, and I had no means of finding out. During all my prison life, there was no outgoing or incoming mail. But at that moment, it ceased to matter. There was no need for me to know. Nothing could touch the strength of my love, my thoughts, and the image of my beloved. Had I known then that my wife was dead, I think that I still, I think I would still have given myself, undisturbed by that knowledge, to the contemplation of her image, and that by mental conversation with her would have been just as vivid as just and just as satisfying. Quote, Set me like a seal upon thy heart. Love is as strong as death. End quote. So, I hope that wasn't too long. I felt it's an important passage. It's an important book. I thought it might give some added um, richness to kind of this idea of love and the beloved and losing oneself in the beloved and what that can mean and what that can look like and the power of that. Are there any questions or comments or anything that anyone would like to share uh, before we close? You're more than welcome. Check my messages. I don't know what more to elaborate <laughs> It means May Allah honor you You know. So the idea is that this The the topic That is being mentioned uh, In terms of you know, uh, The restroom And using the restroom and stuff like that Is a topic that has a certain level Of uh, Distaste to it And um, Uh um, like uh, like certain offensiveness to it and so the dua that the, the shaykh would make would just be to you know may Allah honor you I'm going to talk about this thing that's not so honorable right um, I don't know what to say more than that I hope that helps Barakallah fikum.
I think you may have been muted for a little bit when I answered it before. Alrighty. Barakallahu fikum. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect all of us and bring us through this uh, trial with uh, closer to Him. What else is there to say? It's a trial. A lot of, lot of cases now. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us and keep us safe. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Al Asr inna al insan illa fi khusr. إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر جزاكم الله خيرا الله bless all of you see you next time inshallah السلام عليكم السلام عليكم